1: Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by...
2: Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to... Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to GetBrewNinja.com and using
0: the code BrewNinja21. What you're about to hear is a powerful story that originally aired in August of 2017. The message is so important. That I plan to continue re-releasing this episode annually until every brew kettle in America has boil over protection. If you know of someone who doesn't have boil over protection installed on their kettle, please send them a link to this episode.
3: And I was 66% chance to not survive. So ultimately I was had a 34% chance to live.
0: Today on the show, a remarkable woman tells how she beat the odds to survive a terrible accident in the brewery. You'll also hear from another guest who describes an inexpensive way to prevent that same accident from happening to you. Today, I'm joined by two very special guests who actually don't know each other, but their combined message is an important one that every brewer worldwide should hear loud and clear. Carrie, let's start with you. Why don't you introduce yourself to listeners?
3: Hi, my name is Carrie Caldwell and I am a brewer currently working at Mother Earth Brewing Company in Nampa, Idaho.
0: And Carrie, how how long have you been brewing?
3: I have been brewing for seven years now. Sounds crazy.
0: You've worked at a few different um, breweries, I think mostly in in Idaho, right?
3: Yeah, I started brewing in uh, Southern California. I worked at Belmont Brewing Company in Long Beach and their sister brewery, Bonaventure Brewing Company in Los Angeles. And I took a job up here in Boise at Table Rock Brew Pub, which is now out of business Um, after Table Rock, I went to Edge Brewing Company where I was the head brewer.
0: Okay. Uh, Carrie, July 10th, 2015 changed your life forever. Why don't you tell us about what you remember from that day? How did it start?
3: It really started like any other day. Um, I actually have some pictures on my phone. I had just taken some pictures of my assistant as he was graining in Um, We were making my favorite beer, double IPA, um, called Obligatory. And the day was kind of going off without a hitch. I mean, I've made beer a million times. And basically, my assistant had to, the way the brew kettle and the brew stand was set up at Edge, in order to clean out the mash tun, someone had to climb into the mash tun. take the grates out because they were screwed down in the back. So every day someone had to climb in the mash tun and during that time I'm always very cautious because nobody wants to have an accident happen at the brewery and with the mash rakes I was always I always watched when my assistant was in the mash tun because I was afraid that there would be some freak accident and the rakes would turn on and you know he would get chopped into a million pieces which probably sounds dramatic but you worry about those things when you're the head brewer.
0: It's a healthy fear.
3: Yeah. And, you know, I think it was, he was in there and I had, I was, he had my hose because he was spraying out inside of the mash tun and I had just put in, I believe it was my start of boil hops, but the details are a little foggy at this point. Um and I turned my back to the kettle to make sure that he was doing okay because it's a fifteen barrel brewery, so I can see the kettle and the mash tun just from one spot, just rotating left or right. And the kettle started to boil over, and I—he had my sprayer, so I couldn't spray it down. And you know, it, it all happens so fast. The kettle started to boil over and it splashed me and I panicked and I slammed the lid of the kettle shut because it was starting to boil over a lot and I didn't have a way to spray it down. What I should have done in hindsight is just hit the power button and shut the kettle off. But as a brewer, I'm thinking like, what can I do to save the batch of beer? If I turn off the kettle, you know, it could mess something, mess the beer up. So And what happened when I shut the lid on the kettle was it just increased the pressure in the kettle and it started spraying out worse instead of better. You know, like if you put a lid on a boiling pot of water, the steam in the boiling water starts spraying out worse. And so basically I just, I got covered in boiling wort and I leapt off of the brew stand. Um... Instead of, again, instead of turning it off or, and, and it, it, it does all happen so fast, I just jumped off the brew stand and I was screaming. My assistant was inside the mash tun, so he didn't know what was going on and he's trying to get out of the mash tun. Um, I remember like just <laughs> the brewery, it has some glass doors where you can see into the brewery from the brew pub and it was, you know, lunch rush. And I just started peeling off my clothes. So I, just because they're hot, they're covered in wart, And I was yelling at my assistant to hose me down. I remember just saying like, hose me down, hose me down, hose me down. Um, and...
0: So that was your first in- instinct to get cold water on, on yourself as quickly as possible, right?
3: Yeah, just, I mean, you know, if I was to splash hot water on myself in my kitchen, I would run my, you know, put some cold wa- run it under cold water. And that was just what I thought. It was just like, get this hot... You know, it's sticky liquid. It's got pop chunk, pop chunks in it, and it's sugar. It was a double IPA, so it's you know pretty pretty sticky at that point. And uh, he said, you know, he's spraying me off, and he's like, we need to call nine one one. I'm like, we don't need to call nine one one. I'm fine. I just need to cool off. His adrenaline and everything else is pumping.
0: I was going to ask you that, you know, because some people who experience trauma, they don't immediately comprehend the extent of their injuries. So uh, it sounds like you you didn't really realize the severity of the situation right away.
3: Well, right. And just like a skull burn is when it first burns you, it just looks pink. You know, like if you burn yourself with a firecracker, your skin is charred, it looks burned. But if you, you know, splash hot water on yourself, it's pink. And then maybe an hour later, it's got a blister. And then, you know, another couple of days go by and the blister pops. Like a scald burn is a slow building burn. So it's like the difference between boiling a hot dog and cooking one on a stick. You can't really tell when it's done, you know. And so I didn't think it was that bad. And and. I looked down and I could see that the skin was kind of starting to fall off of my arm, and I realized like, okay, maybe we should go to the hospital, but don't call nine one one you guys can just take me to the hospital and the owner was there, and his little girl was there who at that point like totally idolized me. she's five years old, and all she wanted to do was be a brewer like me and She came into the brewery like right as right as this was happening. I was like, get Avery out of here. (laughs) Anyways, I think they had called the hospital and let them know we were coming, because I remember there was someone outside with a wheelchair, but maybe it's just that in the emergency area there's just someone waiting with a wheelchair for this kind of thing. The accountant at Edge drove me to the hospital, and I remember in the car ride. The hospital is there's pretty close to edge. I believe it's maybe a mile and a half. But it's through sort of right where the mall is. So there's lots of intersections and lots of cars. So it felt like it took forever. And I remember I was doing what I can only, you know, I've never had a child, but what I would consider like Lamaze breathing, like like breathe, breathe, breathe. And then I would scream and then I'd breathe, breathe, breathe and scream, just trying to like control the pain. Because at that point, I think my adrenaline had worn off a little bit and I was starting to really feel the pain. And they wheeled me into the emergency room and it's packed in there because, you know, emergency rooms are always packed. But, and they wheeled me just straight back into a room. Like they didn't check me in or anything. They were just like, we need to get her in a room. They cut my clothes off of me and gave me some narcotic of some sort. I'm not sure which one at that point. Uh, My parents had been called and my husband at the time, um, he's now my ex-husband, but they had been called and they were, they got to the hospital shortly after I did. I think my assistant had called my husband and my husband had called my parents. And they got me sedated and said that You know, the burns didn't look too bad because at that point, again, it just kind of looked like a sunburn. It was just red and said that they thought that they'd probably have to hold me overnight. Um, But they were going to send some pictures to the burn unit and see what the burn trauma center had to say about the pictures. So they had this iPad and they were taking pictures of me. And within a few minutes, it went from... Well, we'll probably have to keep you overnight to keep an eye on you to like, we're going to put you on a life flight and get you to Salt Lake City immediately.
0: Wow. What so, was what was that ride like?
3: Um, I took a couple pictures outside the window. It was an airplane because a helicopter can't fly all the way from Boise to Salt Lake City. I guess it's too far of a flight for the life flight helicopters. So they had me on a little plane and I was, I mean, at that point I was completely sedated. Like with narcotics, not passed out. And I, I remember asking the, the nurse or the, I don't know what the right word is, so I apologize, but the...
0: Paramedic or...
3: The paramedic <laughs> on, the, on the life flight, if I could take pictures. So yeah, I took a couple of pictures out the window and it said, it's probably the only time I'll ever have my own personal airplane. So, <laughs> you
0: know.
3: and it w- it was a little scary because i know as someone who's seen life flight helicopters flying in and out of hospitals the first thing i think of when i see a life flight is oh my god that person's gonna die you know yeah. like you don't like and so i thought like how bad is this like it doesn't look that bad but they're life flight i mean they didn't put me in a car or tell me that i need to go somewhere um and I got to the hospital and they put me in the burn unit. And when I first got there, even in the burn trauma intensive care unit, which is where I spent um, 35 days ultimately, when I first got there, they even told me that they thought I'd only be there about 10 days. And as they started, you know, if the first 10 days in a, uh, Scald burn, they're basically, we would just do wound care every day. So, twice a day, they would come in and completely scrub me down to try to get off whatever skin was dying. Sorry if this is kind of gross. But, and they, very painful. At that point, they have you on like fentanyl, which is an incredibly powerful narcotic, galotted um, oxy, like, a cocktail of all three, which I didn't realize you could take that many narcotics and not die. But as long as someone's monitoring your, monitoring your breathing, they'll they'll dope you up as much as they possibly can for wound care. Um,
0: Carrie, I I read an article where you were quoted as saying, "Keeping me comfortable was keeping me from not screaming." You you also yeah. said that you could hear the screaming from the other rooms in the burn unit during the routine bandage changes. What got you through that absolutely horrible experience?
3: Um, well, having my parents and my husband they they took turns spending time with me. Um, my parents are retired. My dad is a full time caretaker for my mom, who has early onset Alzheimer's. So um they were able to i mean that's a terrible thing in itself but because of that they were able to be there the whole time and i would have them put music on spotify there's a the whole room had built-in speakers so you could just plug your phone into the wall and listen to music and i would put on i would have my dad i would just pick a song and have my dad put a station on and i would listen to music and try to sing along while they did wound care um, which is the most the best that you can do in those situations. Like it, there's no amount of painkillers they can give you that will make the pain completely go away. It can just make you not think about it so much. Um, and definitely. There's a couple of children in there and they're definitely the ones who were doing the, the screaming during wound care. You could tell when it was wound care. There's a toddler in there in one of the rooms. There was a little boy in one of the rooms. Um, so, yeah, it, it definitely not, not an ideal situation. But the University of Utah um, Burn Trauma Intensive Care Unit is one of the highest rated in the country. And they're amazing. They did a fantastic job. Uh, But yeah, as they would do my wound care, they would scrub off the skin as it was dying off. And it basically turned out they first at first they thought it was just first and second degree burns. But ultimately, it was second, third and fourth degree burns. And after the 10 days was up, they decided they were going to do a skin graft surgery because some of my wounds were just so deep that it had gone all the way through the skin at that point, because they, again, they can't tell until the skin completely dies and it comes off. They don't know the depth of the burns. Um, so I had to have seven skin grafts, which I remember signing the, the NDA or whatever it is, the, D- or the, DR. not the DNR. Yeah. And I, I remember they made me sign this thing and I'm like, I don't. I don't understand why I'm signing this. Am I going to die? <laughs> like if this you know, the whole thing just felt so overwhelming that it, and it, at that point, they don't tell you they're trying to keep you positive, so they're not telling you the worst. They're telling you the best. Uh, so anyways, I had the skin graft surgery, and then after that, it's a little bit of a slower recovery. I was lucky. Um, A lot of people that have skin grafts end up getting infections or the skin grafts don't take. There's a lot of complications that can come up. Keloid scarring um, causes the skin grafts to pull and they don't set right. I mean, and my skin graft surgery went off completely without a hitch. I never had an infection. I never had, I haven't, I mean, eventually in 10 or 20 years, I might have to have them redone because I, they sometimes break down over time but right now they're doing really good and my scarring is quite minimal a lot of people it just kind of looks like freckles or a birthmark or something so i whatever genetics i was blessed with i don't scar terribly badly
0: you mentioned that um you mentioned that you know you had this kind of ongoing sense that your life might still be at risk of your body was covered in severe burns and not everybody survives that. Why don't you tell listeners what the odds are?
3: So they didn't tell me what the odds were until checkout. They came into the room and said they wanted to go over some numbers with me. And I'm like, I thought they were going to talk to me about medical bills. (laughs) Like, oh my God, I, I don't want to talk about this right now. So they came in, but what they really talked about was the your odds of recovery and i was 33 or 34% um second third and fourth degree um they don't count your first degree in that so whatever parts of me were more lightly burned didn't get counted in that and also the skin the site that they they harvested skin off of one of my legs to put it in all the spots that needed to be grafted so they don't count the giant open wound that they leave on your body as part of your uh, total burn um, amount, but the way they calculate your mortality rate is your age plus your amount burned. And I was sixty-six percent chance to not survive. So ultimately, I was had a thirty-four percent chance to live.
0: Wow. And. Wow.
3: When they told me that, I was like completely blown away. Like I never expected it to be that bad. I thought it was like twenty-five at the most. Like that, I that I would die, not live. Like I didn't, I didn't realize it was that bad. And I remember just like I'm really glad they don't tell you that when you first get there because it could be very disheartening and probably hinder your attitude while you're in there. You know, I could. My dad says that, you know, he talks about, when we talk about it, he says that I was really inspiring. You know, when we would go to physical therapy, they would tell me to do like five squats or whatever. And I would always do seven. Like I would always push myself to, I wanted to get out of there. You know, and if they told me when I first got there that I had a 34% chance to live, I might not have tried so hard, you know. So I think it's good that they wait, but it's pretty devastating to finally hear it at the end.
0: The the recovery process must have been very long and I don't know, maybe you'd say that you're still recovering. How long did the pain last and when did you finally start to feel like yourself again?
3: I was out of work for 5 months. Um which is a really long time for a head brewer to not be in a brewery. And the pain I think I probably the worst of the pain was probably the first 6 to 9 months. Um I started weaning myself off of the narcotic painkillers when I started feeling them. Because when you're taking, when you have severe amounts of pain and you're taking narcotics, I, I don't remember ever really feeling high in the hospital. You know what I mean? I never felt loopy. I just, it was, an, it was what took the edge off. So you could feel normal. And when I would be at home, I, as soon as I would start to notice, like, oh, I feel kind of loopy. I would back off my narcotics because a lot of people were like, oh, you're still on narcotics. I could see the look in their eye like, oh, you're going to be hooked on these things, aren't you? Like, no, no. Trust me, I only take what I need to take. Um, But uh, right now I just had my two-year burniversary uh, last week and I have the only spots that I still currently have pain in Are areas that they call hyperesthesia, which is um, my nerves are still growing back in some areas. And the nerves are hypersensitive because they haven't been trained yet. So there's spots where if you just like touch me, it feels like you're stabbing me. But there's no, I don't have all the time pain. Um, And I do have some spots that have no sensation at all. It's like novocaine. I can just poke my hip and I feel nothing. so there's, you know, but no, for me, there's no long term pain. I know there are a lot of people who suffer from more severe nerve pain. Um, scar tissue that is heavy scar tissue can have a lot of pain spots. So I've been very, very lucky um, physically in the long run. But for me, the hardest part is the PTSD that I have. So I still. Um, I am not an anxious person by nature. I'm really laid back, but I am now, I take Zoloft every day. I have two different Xanax prescriptions. Um, I have, my entire emotional capacity is diminished. Uh, It's hard for me to work. One of the reasons I no longer work at EDGE is it was just too hard for me to continue to be in the place where it happened. I love making beer. It's what I, it's what I love to do. It's it's the luckiest job in the world, as far as I'm concerned. But even still, to this day, there's days where I wonder if this is a job that I can do for the rest of my life. Sorry, I'm starting to.
0: Carrie, you are one tough lady. You've 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 really. (laughs) Um, it's it's remarkable how you've bounced back from this.
3: Thank you. And most of the time, I feel really good. But yeah, there's just especially. they told me when I left the hospital that your burn anniversary, which is what they coined it—that's not my term—would um, <laughs> be hard. Would be hard every year. And at first, I was just thinking, like, once I get out of here, I am never looking back. Like that was my attitude. But it's—it's it's true. Every year, my anxiety. Like, it's only—I'm only two years in, so it might get better ultimately. But you know, I have been kind of a disaster. Uh, My body is, they, they said that your body has like a biological clock in it, and that that biological clock remembers the time of year that this happened, and I'm definitely, you know, at a very heightened sense of that fight or flight. You know, I yeah. the other day I was just terrified for no reason, and I told my boyfriend. He's like, "What is wrong right now?" I'm like, I'm just I'm scared. And he goes, "What are you afraid of?" And I was like, "I'm not afraid of anything. I just I'm filled with terror, like waking up from a bad dream, and your heart is racing, and you can't breathe." That terror. That's you know that that's where my long term like healing is at. Is um, I I have to see a therapist regularly. So for me, the emotional scars are much worse than my physical scars. Um, And everyone is different. There's people that I know that are some of the happiest, best people I know are burn survivors. I was lucky enough to go to World Burn Congress last year and meet thousands of burn survivors. And some of them are completely disfigured by scars, but they have the best attitudes. And I feel like I am completely the opposite of that. (laughs) I almost have no scarring. Or very little visible scarring, most of my scarring is on my torso where you don't see it. and but I'm just an emotional disaster
0: Coming up, an easy, affordable way to make sure an accident like this never happens to you. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. really only one thing that keeps this podcast going and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors the next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies be sure to thank them for their generous support
1: get to know proximity malt we malt superior european style low protein varieties grown close to home in delaware and colorado domestically grown precisely malted to style with our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses Try what's really new in Malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com.
2: Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com/MBAA.
0: This episode is also sponsored by More Beer. Visit morebeerpro.com to browse ingredients, equipment, and more.
2: H.S. Sativa, brought to you by BSG Hop Solutions. Meet the latest in the BSG Hop Solutions portfolio, H.S. Sativa. Strong expressions of stone fruit, floral, and resinous pine flavors and aromas define this blend. Craft is specifically for use in hazy IPAs and other hop-forward beers. HS Sativa is ideal for aroma, whirlpool, and dry hop additions to hazy and juicy IPAs, or for any other hoppy styles where a combination of citrus, tropical fruit, and pine aromatics are desired. Go to bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more, or call 1-800-374-2739.
0: And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. July 20th, join John Harris, Kevin Davey, and Andy Morrison for a webinar called Cold IPA Defined," find a deep dive with the creators. I'm happy to report that District Texas is back. Their infamous annual summer meeting, which takes place at End of the Hills in Kerrville, will be August 6th through the 8th. And the Master Brewers Brewery Maintenance Systems course starts August 15th. I'm so glad to see the great District Northwest meeting once again at Hood River, October 15th and 16th. There's one big meeting that's on my calendar. I hope it's on yours. The 2021 Master Brewers Conference will be October 28th through the 30th in Cleveland. And don't forget the world-famous Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science course begins October 31st. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Master Brewers offers a
2: wide range of resources for breweries of all sizes and stages. Stay current on the latest scientific advancements, technical information, and industry trends by joining Master Brewers. Join today and use offer code BEER2021 to save 20% on dues now through December 31st, 2021. Master Brewers. United
0: we brew. back to the show. <music> Carrie. one of the reasons, uh, really the main reason the three of us wanted to get together here today to tell your story is uh, to prevent a- an accident like this from happening to other brewers. And yes. we've also got my friend Scott Zetterstrom here with us today. Hi, Scott. Are you still there? Yeah, I still am. So Scott has designed, built, decommissioned, and moved lots of breweries over the last two decades. He's an engineer and a practical brewer through and through. He's the kind of guy I have on speed dial for whenever there's a difficult rigging job or I need someone to custom build an automated keg washer complete with touchscreen controls for me. Scott, you've been in the industry a long time, and I'm sure you've seen your share of accidents and near misses. What's it like to hear Carrie's story?
1: It's it's very, very moving and very uh, touching and emotional, uh, and I can't imagine what you had to go through, Carrie. That's just, uh, it's incomprehensible. You know, we've all had minor little burns here and there, and then to magnify that, it's just, I can't even imagine what that what that's like.
0: I started working at Old Dominion Brewing Company in 2004. Scott, we didn't overlap, but you had worked there together with John Mallett in the 90s, and you became the brewmaster at Dominion. I'm, I'm not sure what year that was. Do you remember? Uh, no,
1: 96, 97, 98, somewhere around there.
0: Yeah. So Dominion was the third brewery uh, that I, I worked in, but it was the first place I encountered boilover protection. And looking back through the master brewer's technical quarterly archives, I see that Mallet actually wrote a paper in 1997 called Brewery Configuration for craft brewing optimization, and that paper actually included a section about boilover protection. Scott, do you remember when that sensor was put in the kettle at Dominion, or what? I need to ask Mallet about that?
1: Well, actually, we put that in when we added the new kettle. So that was something that we requested from, uh, from uh, uh, let's see, that kettle was, I can't remember if that kettle was a JV or a century, actually. Um, It might have been a century cuddle. I think it was. uh, Yeah, we uh, we requested it at that time, and uh, they they provided us materials to do that. Um, They didn't they didn't install it. We had to install it, um, but it was something that that they put together the the pieces for. I think that early one was a conductivity probe, actually.
0: Okay, and and when I heard about Carrie's injury uh, two years ago, I asked Scott to write a white paper about boilover protection. Uh, Again, so we could help prevent accidents like this from happening at other breweries. Thank you for doing that, by the way. Um, Listeners can find Scott's paper in the brewery safety section at mbaa.com or simply by typing boilover with a hyphen into the search bar. Also... None of the brewery safety content is restricted to members at MBA.com, so anyone can access this document. Scott, you've installed at least a couple of boilover sensors for me in the past. Could you please take a minute to explain just how simple and inexpensive it is to put one of these devices on a brew kettle?
1: Uh, certainly. and Basically, all we're doing is putting in a switch that senses the level of the material in the kettle. So when you have a boil over, you get a foam pile that forms on top of the liquid and then it builds and builds and builds until at some point it it, it comes out of the kettle. Uh, we put a sensor in that will sense that foam pile before it gets to the door and turns the steam off. Um, there are different types of sensors that you can use. Currently, I'm using a capacitive type sensor, sensitive, uh, sensor which... Uh, Seems to work very well, the sensitivity is correct, and they, and they tend to auto-tune very well. So, um, basically, it's just simply a level switch uh, that turns the steam off when you or the burner off when the boil gets to, uh, to a certain height. Um, the installation involves uh, welding in a fitting at the top of the kettle. Uh, the u- units that I use have triclover fittings, so we weld a triclover fitting at the top of the kettle and then wiring it into your steam control system. Uh, Obviously, if you have a completely manual system, you would need to add a steam control valve of some type, either a motorized control valve or solenoid valve. But if you have a semi-automated system or a system that has already uh, automated steam control, um, then it's simply wiring it in, and that can be very straightforward. Um, Even on PLC systems, it's not a complicated addition. So, you know, usually... $2,500 Twenty-five hundred for a system that has valves, and somewhere under four thousand dollars for a system that needs to have valves installed. Uh, and you could provide this protection. Um, it's certainly, you know, to have a, a situation, you know, that Carrie had uh, to be able to prevent that. I I don't know how you would. How you would not think about doing it, um, but even uh, even just the monetary costs of, of losing wort on a regular basis—that was one of the things that drove us. We certainly never had any kind of horrible accident like Carrie had, but uh, you know, losing wort out the door on a regular basis—you um, know—it adds up quite quickly.
0: Sure, um, yeah, that's a pretty small price to pay in the grand scheme of things when you're talking about you know probably spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on on brewing equipment in most cases. Um, where Scott? Where should a, bre- a brewer go to to get one of these devices?
1: Well, I suppose uh, you know the brands that I use. Uh, 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 I don't know if you want me to plug the unit
0: that I use. Yeah, but, that's um, it's no problem. I mean, we want to help people figure out how to how to put one of these things on if they need help.
1: Yeah, I mean the, the unit that I'm currently using is the is a Dwyer unit. It's a capacitive level sensor. If you go to the Dwyer uh, Dwyer Instruments website. Um, that's d-w-y-e-r-instrument.com. Um, you'll look and you'll see they have various different level switches. There's all kinds of level switches. Uh, the capacitive one is the one we use. Um, you can use conductivity switches. I use those uh, generally in, in straight liquid environments like a hot liquor tank or cold liquor tank or CIP system, something like that. Um, they can be used to, cl- to, to find the foam pile, but many times they need to be adapted a little bit. Uh, to get in the sensitivity range that you need to determine foam versus air. So... Um without a lot of false tripping. So that's why we've moved to the capacitive ones.
0: Okay, great. And I'm sure listeners can also get in touch with you if they want help or even start a discussion thread on Ask the Brewmasters, and we can um, connect people to the right resources if, if they need help um, installing something like this.
1: Now, I, I had a, just a quick uh, question, I guess, Kerry. In, in, mm-hmm. in, in many, in this brewery, I'm assuming, uh, you know, the controls... To turn things on and off, the burner, et cetera, were on one side, and then the stairway to to get off the platform was probably on the opposite side of that, right? So the kettle door was spewing hot fluid in between. Any you know, trying to get either turn off or get the heck out of there. Yes, right. So and 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 that's the situation in most breweries because you know the controls need to be accessible, and the platform isn't very big, and you have to have access, but the controls can't block the access. So typically. Whereas if you have a boil over, you are not going to be able to get to the controls to turn things off. And that's true in almost every, every small brewery. Um, so it produces a very dangerous situation.
0: Sure does.
3: When I got burned, they had to wait till the kettle boiled down enough that it was no longer boiling over before they could get up on the brew stand to do anything. Because wow. once wow. it's boiling over, there's nothing you can do. You can't I mean, no one's going to climb back up there when there's just foam flying out onto the brew deck. So it's definitely very true.
0: Carrie, do you have any idea how how OSHA reacted to the accident uh, that caused your injuries? I, I assume they must have done a, a site visit right away, but you, of course, would have still been in the burn unit.
3: Yes, they did do um, a site unit uh, walkthrough. Um, OSHA... After their investigation um they I believe they interviewed me while I was still I think I'd been out of the hospital like one day and it was a phone interview because I was still in Salt Lake City and I'm sure they talked to my assistant but there's not that many people in the small brewery so there's not a lot of witnesses and what they ultimately deemed was that my injury was an accident it was not not the fault of faulty equipment or uh, faulty usage just a true accident um but they did find multiple other issues while they were there and
0: that tends to happen
3: yeah and so there was uh, I believe it was around five thousand dollars in osha feet uh, fines for various other things they found in the brewery that were wrong <laughs> so while they didn't find anything wrong with the brew kettle specifically um they, aren't really the people that you want to have poking around in a brewery. Like now, in every brewery I go in, I look around and I'm like, that's an OSHA violation. That's an OSHA violation, because I know them all now.
0: <laughs> so once again, boilover protection is cheaper than an OSHA visit. It sure is. <laughs> the article I mentioned earlier by John Mallett was written 18 years prior to Carrie's accident. And while he's a very smart and innovative guy, I'm guessing Mallet wasn't the world's first brewer to install Boilover Protection. So after more than 20 years of easy access to these simple, inexpensive devices and recent horror stories like Carrie's, I'd like to hear what both of you think about the lack of acceptance of these devices. Why isn't Boilover Protection installed on every commercial brew kettle in America? Shouldn't these things be standard on new brew houses like airbags and cars?
3: Uh, I absolutely think they should be standard equipment um, and equating it to an airbag on a car is a really good uh, example. I don't understand why they don't. I think when a lot of breweries, when they start up, they don't necessarily have a lot of money and a $4,000 price tag could mean the difference between opening a brewery and not opening a brewery for some people. Which I'm not, I don't know that that's the financial situation that I would want to put myself in if I was opening a brewery, where that was a decision I had to make. But I realize that that is a decision that a lot of people do have to make. You know, you're trying to open a business and it's like, well, we'll just be real careful, you know? Uh, And I think you can sort of, because bad boil overs are rare, thankfully, um, but. So it's easy to just think like, well, you know, boil overs happen, but we can keep them under control. I don't know. I, but I do think that it should be standard. Um, but really, I don't, I, I don't know much about the, the engineering and the mechanical side, unfortunately. I just, I just like
1: to make the beer. <laughs> um, yeah, so basically, unfortunately, it's an option um people have the option of installing it or not uh certainly uh owners that are looking long term uh and and more conscientious certainly will install it it is cheaper to install new in a new system rather than as an ad but it isn't dramatically expensive to put it on as an ad Um, and certainly systems that are direct fire it's relatively easy to put on because the controls are very straightforward
0: that was Carrie Caldwell and Scott Zetterstrom here on the Master Brewers podcast. When I asked Carrie if she had any second thoughts about reliving her accident, she said she was happy to put herself through a little more emotional torture if that meant someone else could avoid going through it at all. Don't let Carrie's courage go to waste. If you know of someone who doesn't have boil protection on their kettle, send them a link to this episode. You just might save a life. If you'd like to get more information about boilover protection, visit the brewery safety page under the Brewing Resources tab or type boilover into the search bar at mbaa.com. If you'd like to ask questions about boilover sensors or connect directly with Scott, you can do both at community.mbaa.com. Here's how you can best honor Carrie's July 10th anniversary. Take a few minutes to validate the boil over protection on your brew kettle or install boil over protection if you haven't already done so. Do it this month in July for (music) Carrie.